So grateful that you're here today to be a part of our worship time together at New City Church. You know, when we gather together like this, it is New City Church, but when we gather together in small groups, it's also New City Church. When two people are gathered and the Bible says that God's presence is there with them, that Jesus is, is with them even as they gather, that's New City Church as well. As a matter of fact, you know what, let's just wipe out the whole New City Church thing and just say that's church. That's God's people gathered together and his, wherever his presence is, that's church. So you could call it by, by whatever name you want and you could have whatever brand you want on it, but the most important thing is that God be among us. Amen? I really believe that he is and I'm really grateful for that. I do believe that church sometimes can become a routine thing for us. And so we kind of walk the line as we make plans for our services we walk the line between how do we keep this fresh, but then also not scary so that people are like, what is going to happen this week? But let me just explain it to you. I really believe Acts 2.43 says that the early church was filled with awe. I mean, in, in the language that it was originally written, there's no way to get around the fact that they were literally filled with a sense of awe at what God was doing. And every time they got together, there was an air of expectancy. You could feel it in the air. You know what my prayer is for, for us? That when we gather together, there would be an air of expectancy. What is God going to do when we get together this time? What is God going to say? How is he going to minister to? Who is he going to touch? What does he have in mind? I want our hearts to be filled with awe because that's the kind of God that we serve. We should have that expectancy. Amen. Those early believers, they couldn't wait to see what God was going to do next. When we get older, I think we get a little bit accustomed to being bored. We get so good at being bored. You know what I mean? You don't even realize it. If you're, if you, you know, if you're up in, into, if you, if you've crossed the threshold of three decades, you are now a pro at being bored. Bored at work, bored in the, bored on the road, bored wherever you are, bored, bored at home. But whatever, we're bored and we're, and we, we just become pros at it, right? So much so that we don't even notice it when we come to church and we're bored. But it isn't that way for kids at all, right? Kids, they don't know about being bored is like kryptonite for kids, okay? It is like the worst possible thing. Ava, our daughter Ava, is going to be three this week. And, and first of all, that would be a happy birthday to Ava. Great. She doesn't even know that we're out here doing this stuff. But happy birthday to Daniel Small, whose birthday it is today. I don't know if that got said already. <laughs> Daniel's on our production team here. But anyway, um, <laughs> Ava is getting to that age where she, she'll tell us, I'm so bored. But it doesn't come like, I mean, when you're an adult, sometimes you're like, man, I would love to be, some people are like, I would love to be bored. That would be great. I'm so busy and important. But um, when you're a kid, the boredom is so intense that it's like a physical weight on you, right? Have you ever noticed that with kids? They're like, mom, I'm so bored. And it's, it's this like weighs them down. There have been moments where Ava is like laying down from boredom. She's like, I just can't, I can't even move my body. I'm so bored. And I, I really think there's something a little bit to be learned from that. When we come into God's presence, let's not ever be content with being bored. Okay? 
let's recognize that if we will come with that expectant heart, God always honors that. Because that speaks well of God. It says something about who we believe Him to be when we say, I will come expecting today, God. Because I believe that you're generous. Because I believe that you're faithful. Because I believe, God, that you're, that you're the one who wants to speak and act in the lives of your people and even through your people. So, God, that says a lot about God when we just come in with an air, with a heart of expectancy. So that has been a, kind of a blessing to me. I've, I've mentioned this before. As we go through our, our series, The Jesus Story, I've really enjoyed one more time reading through over and over again the Gospel of John and seeing Jesus in a fresh light. And so today I want to talk about this um, in, in maybe a way that I never have before. And so I'm just going to ask you to maybe pray with me, ask for God to give me grace to be able to communicate this well and make our hearts ready to receive it. Lord, thank you today for the fact, God, that you will always surprise and you will never disappoint. God, we come to you expecting today and believing today for you to do the things that you said you would do. And so, God, it's without hesitation that we present ourselves to you. We bring ourselves before you today asking, God, for you to work in our hearts. Bless your word. Lord, I pray, God, that you would help me, as frail and as weak and as foolish as I can be, Lord, help me to say the, the things that you want me to say, nothing more and nothing less today. And, Lord, we as your people want to receive your word and let it bear fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, our text today, I'm just going to read you a couple of portions and give you a little context for it, okay? The behind the scenes, the story leading up to the text, but let's just read it together. John chapter 7, verses 37 to 38, and then a verse from John chapter 8. It says, on the last and greatest day of the festival, talking about the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. And then in the next chapter of John, John records these words. It says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles that John mentions at the beginning of chapter 7, also called the Feast of Booths, right? It was uh, one of three times a year when every devout Jew was expected to, to go to Jerusalem to celebrate together. It was a week-long celebration, uh, and it was, it was basically the, it was the Feast of Booths, or Sukkot, because the entire week the people would be there instructed to, to live in tents to remind them of God, how God had provided for them when they had lived in tents in the wilderness, all right? So it was this idea. It was, uh, it was a harvest celebration, okay? And as they brought in the harvest, they were to be reminded of how God was continually providing for them. And to do so, they would kind of spend the week together in, as families in tents. And so I have a friend who loves to camp, and he'll say that he has a fondness for it because it was a tradition in his family. And I have to remind him that it was a tradition in every family until we invented the house. That's what I will usually tell him. Like, that used to be a tradition for everybody. So now I'm not a fan of camping. It's just not a thing that I'm really into. But I get it, okay? But this was not just like for fun. This wasn't to get away. This was to specifically remind them how God had been faithful to them as they had wandered through the wilderness. And it was 
one of the most joyful moments in the calendar year for Israel. The crops were harvested, and here's what they did. The first part of this was a nightly ceremony where the people would gather by the thousands to watch as water was pulled from the pool of Siloam and carried to the temple steps where it was poured out as a celebration and a reminder of the rain that God had brought, right, so that the crops would grow, okay? So if you can imagine that, just huge, huge, large, uh, you know, you know, basins of water that were, that were carried by, by who knows how many people to the top of the temple steps and then poured out there and the people would cheer and celebrate and be reminded of how God had brought water to them so that they could have a harvest. But the second part of the Feast of Tabernacles was like this. According, and I, if you want to know, if you ever want to get into uh, the rabbinical commentaries called the Mishnah and some of you guys are like, oh, wow, you know, you're so cool, Steve. That's cool. The final night of the feast, just so you know, I'm not just making it up. The final night of the feast, four huge candelabras would be constructed in the temple court. And on each of these large things, they, would, they, were, they were each about 75 feet high. So I don't know, maybe three times the height of this ceiling. Okay? And each of them had four large basins that were filled with oil. Now, there were young men who would, there were some large ladders, and there's illustrations of this if you, if you look through some Biblical commentaries, large ladders leaned up against these, these basins, and a young man would be instructed to climb up that, and he would have the discarded robes of the high priest from Passover, okay? He would have those together tied up, you know, kind of wound up so that he could light that candle, that giant candle <laughs> with the discarded robes of, of, the, uh, of the high priest, and he would, like, light that up, and all of those basins would be lit. So there's 16 of those things around the temple, and the light from that, from those 16 ba- basins, would represent God's presence with the people of Israel as they wandered in the desert, right? But it was enough to light the entire city. That's why things would turn up at the Feast of Tabernacles, right? Because, because it was like an all-night celebration because... Basically, the whole city was lit the whole night, all right, in so many ways, okay? So they would celebrate with singing and dancing all the way till dawn. And this is why I'm telling you all this, because now I want you to see and imagine, perhaps on the, on the steps of the temple itself, as the water was poured out, Jesus standing up in the middle and in a loud voice saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and rivers of life will flow from him like the scripture has said. Now it makes a little more sense. There, as these 16 large, on the final night of the feast, as these, as these large candles were lit and the city came alive with light, Jesus standing up and saying with a loud voice, I am the light of the world. And if anyone comes to me and walks with me, he will never walk in darkness. Man, now we get a different, more vivid picture of how dynamic a person that Jesus was. We get a more vivid picture of the claim that he is making at this moment, saying, you all are celebrating what God has done for you, but let me tell you, it all pointed to me all along. Do you know that every good thing that God has given you in your life is meant to point you to Jesus? Do you know that every good Every good and pleasant thing that we experience in our lives is really just a pale reflection of the beauty and the goodness of God that we see in Jesus. 
I am the light of the world. And as if to punctuate it, after that, after that chapter 8 statement, the next chapter, Jesus opens the eyes of a blind man. As if to say, if you have any doubt, if you need the proof, let me just show you how I bring light and sight. All throughout his ministry, Jesus is making these kind of statements and almost as if to say, I, wanna, I am the light of the world and I need to wake some folks up. Because have you ever had that moment? I don't have, we don't have blackout curtains at our house, but when you're in a hotel room, right? And you, it, it's hotel rooms, you just kind of get lost. It's like you're in a cave when they, you close those curtains, right? But if you open the curtain and it's sunny outside, I mean, the light, the blinding light that you experience at that moment. Man, or if, if you really, really want to get somebody who's asleep and you throw that curtain open and all of a sudden it's just the whole room is filled with light. It's almost like Jesus throughout his ministry is wanting to do this to people. I'm the light of the world. And with his words, with his actions, the, the, the signs that John gives to us, these miracles that Jesus is doing, it's almost like he's throwing back the curtain and saying, you guys have been asleep at the switch. You, you don't realize that the day has come, and I'm here to tell you that. Matter of fact, if you go back to John chapter 2, we didn't cover this in our series yet, but there's this moment right after the, the uh, wedding at Cana, that was our first week. We talked about Jesus at the wedding. I really enjoyed that week. But right after that, Jesus arrives with his disciples at the temple in Jerusalem. Now, this is a, a, maybe two years earlier from our current text and uh, from the, for the Passover feast. And his disciples are, they're coming off a great weekend in Cana, right? There was great dancing. They did the chicken dance. They did the whole thing. It was like a great moment. You know, I saw some, they, they were like, hey, I thought, thought she was cute. You know, all that stuff at the wedding. Right, And now they're at the feast, uh, the Passover feast, and what happens is Jesus comes into the temple and he pulls out this homemade whip and he starts literally chasing people out of the temple, turning tables over and driving out the money changers who were taking advantage, especially of those who were poor and who were coming to, uh, to bring their offerings to God. Jesus is like literally chasing them out and, and saying, it's almost like, welcome to the octagon with Jesus. You know, like he's, he's like, we're going to throw down here. And then he basically says this. He says, I am not okay because my father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer. To say that Jesus is upset at this moment would be to put it mildly. He is not just, you know, biting his lip. He's, he's actually cracking the whip, right? He's out there turning tables over. And the Bible says in Ephesians 4.26, for those of you who wonder how if you have a tough time seeing this, it says, in your anger, do not sin, which means it's possible to be angry but not be in sin. And let me tell you, if your anger comes from love, for the right things, because I would argue today actually that every one of our angers comes from love. Just sometimes we love the wrong things. But if our anger comes from a love for God and a love for people, then it's an appropriate anger to have. That's what Jesus was feeling at that moment. There's nothing wrong with it. As a matter of fact, it might be wrong not to be angry about the right things. Romans 12.9 says, hate what is evil. So here in Jesus, we see this, this dynamism, this personality that is so multifaceted and creative and, and powerful. Every movie I've ever seen about Jesus, I think, falls a little short for one simple reason. None of them seem to capture the sheer intensity and passion of this person. If you really understand the, bio, the biographies that we see in the Bible, the four gospel accounts of Jesus' life, you see a person who is 
incredibly multifaceted and beautiful in the in the in the most in the broadest sense. They those movies that I talk about, whether you see like the you know different uh, different things that have been produced, they 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 accurately depict what Jesus said and did. But the missing ingredient, I think, is passion. Jesus wasn't just the wisest or the kindest person who ever lived. He was also, I think, the most passionate person who ever lived. Now, one favorite author of mine is an author named Dorothy Sayers. She was a British mystery writer. She came to Christ and uh, has a, a few essays that she wrote. And I have mined those essays for quotes for so many years that if you know me, you've heard me quote Dorothy Sayers before, okay? So my apologies, that, but every great sermon of mine, you know, that it's, you know that I've been feeling good during the week if I've got a Dorothy Sayers quote and a C.S. Lewis quote, okay? We've got both of them today, so you're in for, in for a real treat, okay? This is what she said, though. She said, to do them justice, the people who crucified Jesus did not do so because he was a bore. Quite the contrary. He was too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. We have declawed the Lion of Judah and made him a house cat for pale priests and pious old ladies. No offense to pious old ladies. I think that that is an incredible statement to, to say that Jesus was a person who because of that dynamic personality, because he came and disrupted things and, and shattered the status quo, that was the reason why he got in hot water with people. Jesus was a person who showed tenderness, anger, humility, love, laughter. So why shouldn't we, his followers, also be passionate in the same ways? This is why I've never really tried to pull this out from these texts, but I really felt it, and I kind of tried to scoot around it, or as Ava likes to say, scooch around it. Um, I tried to get around it this week as I was preparing, but I really felt like this is where we need to land. Why shouldn't we, as Jesus followers, also see that same passionate work in our lives? Why shouldn't we be enthusiastic when we get together to worship? <laughs> I mean, the word enthusiasm comes from two Greek words, En, which has to do with being in or within, and then theos. So God within is really what it means, okay? And so if God is at work, the idea here is if God is inside of us, then there should be an enthusiasm, there should be a life, there should be a dynamism that would be at work in our lives. Jesus was that creative, engaging, warm, unpredictable person that everybody from the littlest child to the oldest person wants to be near, we saw it in the Gospels. Well, why was he like that? Let me kind of bring it home a little bit for us. Let me help you understand some of the way that I see it. And I'll just make this simple statement. Sin is a waste of energy. I don't know you want to call it sin is sideways energy. You could call it sin is a waste of energy. But whatever it is, you waste God-given energy and resources on every, every time you sin on something that it shouldn't be spent on. Lust is a waste of energy. You waste energy coveting something that you can't or shouldn't have. You waste energy when you get filled up and puffed up with pride. You waste lots of energy sometimes. We all waste lots of energy 
pretending to be somebody that we're not, right? That, that kind of pretense is, is a waste of energy. That kind of pride is a waste of energy. We waste our energy on things that we shouldn't be spending our energy on, and then we have to spend even more energy on things like dealing with guilt and depression and anxiety that comes from our sin. It is a colossal waste of energy to walk down that road. But let's be honest, we've all done that, right? And we all do that. I'll say the flip side, though, which I think is also true. Nothing is more energizing than doing the will of God. Consider Jesus. Think of the expenditure of energy involved in his life, casting out demons, healing the sick, showing compassion to the outcasts, teaching the crowd, defending his actions to the Pharisees, and mediating all of the arguments that his disciples were having. (laughs) But even after a full day of ministry, the Bible will tell us, even though they hiked hiked through miles of pretty rugged terrain, Jesus would still get up early, stay up late, or even pull an all-nighter in prayer. How did he do that, you would ask? And I would say, let's listen to what Jesus says. In John chapter 4, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. His disciples have come to him and said, hey, Jesus, you need to take a break. You need to get some rest. You need to get some lunch. And he says, you guys don't understand. My food, the thing that energizes me is to do the will of my father. The thing that energized him, the reason that he was the most passionate person Maybe we could say who has ever lived is because he didn't waste any energy on sin. He always said yes to God's will. He always said yes. He always said yes to whatever God wanted from him, whatever God asked of him, even when it, was, it seemed to be the thing that would crush him. The Bible says Jesus said yes, and he was always moving. To be used by God, let me just tell you today, we have to be willing to get moving. There's no superhero called Sloth Man. Right? And he's only willing to fight crime if it's between the hours of 2 and 4 p.m. and if it doesn't require too much exertion. There's no superhero like that. There's no gift, spiritual gift of laziness, right? Some of you guys are like, I think I might have that gift. <laughs> There's no line in any job application that I've ever seen that says, are you willing to do nothing and get paid for it? If you see that job, let me know about it, right? The common quality that I could see in people who are used by God is really not singing talent or business acumen or symmetrical, beautiful features or even sharp wit. The most important qualifier for being used by God is a willingness to be used by God. That's it. Just a willingness to say yes to God. That's the most important thing. So you could throw out all that other stuff or at least bump it down the list as far as how important any of that is and bring it to the top of the list. A person who is willing to say yes to God is one who can be used by God. Many great destinies are missed because people won't get moving. Are you willing today to do what God asks of you? Are you willing today to take a, a hard look at your life and say, is there any, how much wasted energy? How much energy is being wasted on this other, on, 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 on envy, 
on, on anger to, for the wrong things, on, on how much energy is being wasted on, on coveting those things or, or being proud about this. or How much energy are we wasting? Let me tell you, I can look at my life and I can see areas where there is energy being wasted on sin. And I believe God would say to you today, why are you wasting that? Not only is it an offense to God, not only does it cost our lives and everybody else who our sin impacts, but it is a colossal waste of potential that God would have you to spend instead on doing His will. Here's my advice today for you. Develop a reflex of saying yes to God. I mean, I just wanted to give you those glimpses of Jesus today. I just wanted you to show, I just wanted you to see and to show you how what, what kind of person we're talking about here? Because he said yes to God. I really believe you should develop that reflex in your life. You know what I mean by a reflex, right? The, there, some, some people have really fast reflexes. Other people have really slow reflexes. A turtle was crossing the road and he was mugged by two snails. It's a true story. So the police are called in. They show up and they ask him, they ask the turtle, what happened? The turtle is breathless and pretty shaken and he just says, I don't know, it all happened so fast. <laughs> this is the best joke I've told so far at New City Church, the corniest. Some of us have such slow reflexes that we miss opportunities that God puts in front of us, Right? We haven't really developed the reflex to say yes. And so my advice to you today is say yes to the little things. You know, I'll, I'll be frank with you today. This is not me trying to angle or anything else like that, but we have lots of areas to serve here at New City Church. They, they aren't necessarily areas that are probably the grand design for God for your life. Like, I have designed you and prepared you these many years, my daughter, to work in rookies, you know, <laughs> at New City Kids, right? They, that, there's probably more that God has in mind for you than that, but let me just tell you, if you'll say yes to God in these little things, you start developing a reflex for those most important moments. When you start saying yes to God to say, okay, God, I'll stay a little late and I'll help the team load out, then you know what happens? I think that you start developing the reflex to say yes to God in those most important moments. I've watched it happen in my life. I've watched it happen in other people's lives. Saying yes to God is the quickest way to see faith and enthusiasm and excitement come alive in our lives. Saying yes to God opens the door for God to work in our hearts. It's the way that God begins to give to us His desires. I mean, so many other religions are about emptying ourselves of desire. There's a lot of different world religions that that's the goal, to be completely emptied of desire. But this is not the case for Christians. The case that what, what happens is we're saying, yeah, God, we want to be filled with desire, but we want to be filled with the right desires. Jesus, let me just tell you, provokes the right desires. He awakens them. He heightens them. This is what he do with, this is what he does with us. Hanging out with him makes us care about what he cares about. It makes us act how, he act how He acts. It makes us love in the ways that He loves. Deciding to say yes to God 
opens the door for him to pour those desires into our lives. Here's your C.S. Lewis quote. God finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. This is what Lewis is saying. All those things that kind of drive us. He says, it's not that we need to be emptied of them. Those things just need to be displaced with a bigger desire, with a, with a more profound, more meaningful desire. That's what happens when we grow up in Christ, I believe. It's not just that we start learning more Bible verses. Spiritual maturity is not a transfer of information. Yeah, I need a little bit of information to continue to, to, to inform my mind about God, but the goal of all that information is to transform my heart. Okay? It's not just accumulated knowledge. It's changed desires. Psalm 37, verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in Him, and He will conceive in you the desires, His desires. Say yes to God, and new desires will be born in you. God literally downloads His desires into our hearts when we make a decision to delight ourselves in Him and to love Him. That's what I wanted to talk about today. Because I really believe that this is the aim for us today. At New City Church and every other place, every other people, every other group of, of Christians who name the name of Christ, this morning meeting somewhere around the world is to say yes to God and allow Him to, to work in our hearts to provoke the right desires in us so that our hearts will be changed. Now here's the obstacle as we close. The Bible says that you and I are infected by a fatal condition. Every one of us, we talked about it at the beginning. Sin is a fatal disease. We can't delight ourselves in the Lord because we choose sin. When we choose sin, we cannot delight ourselves in the Lord. And every one of us has. And the Bible says that every sin will always grow up and produce death. Now, let me just tell you, some of you guys have said, you know, I... You know, I'm, you might feel like, oh my goodness, I, I'm a per, I, am, I sin. I'm a sinner. And so God must hate me. But let me just be clear with you today. God doesn't hate you. God loves you. And God hates sin because he loves you. Do you hear me? God hates sin because he loves people. And so this is the call to say today, if you and I have been infected in some way by this, and we all have, then there is only one remedy, the Bible says, for you and me, and that is to appeal to Jesus. First Corinthians, or sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, God put the wrong on him who did no wrong so that we could be put right with God. That means this sinless man, Jesus, his mission, what he said yes to God, to do was to take the punishment that I deserved, to take the sting, to take the venom, to take the disease upon himself so that I could be healed, so that my desires could be put right again, so that now I could say yes to God. 